0: You know a lot about a person when you know their goal in life. Uh, that'll tell you a lot about how they spend their time and their money and their energy. It'll tell you what activities they will engage in. Sometimes it'll even tell you who they'll vote for. So what's the goal of your life? What's your aim? What are you aiming at? Most of the time, it seems like the culture around us encourages us to aim at success or perhaps comfort or happiness or happiness. And if you're a parent, you have certainly felt the push of the culture to aim your children in that same direction. They should be successful academically. They should be stars on the athletic field. They should be popular. These are the things we should aim our children at, we're told. But according to Peter, that's not who we are. According to Peter, we're the kind of people whose aim is to do the will of God. Now, you may be thinking, Peter's overestimating me. (laughs) That's not usually my aim. But I actually think you're wrong about that. We'll deal with that in a little while. But Peter is pretty clear that our aim is to do the will of God. That's who we are. And in 1 Peter 4, Peter gives us um, some insight into what that means for us, the kind of behavior that falls out of that aim to help us Digest better what Peter's saying this morning. We're going to organize his thoughts into three encouragements. So, Peter encourages us first to establish the right mindset, secondly, to live with the end in mind, and thirdly, to entrust our circumstances to God. To establish the right mindset, to live with the end in mind, and to entrust our circumstances to God. These encouragements will help us to improve our aim. All right, before we dive in, let's uh, let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would confirm at the deepest level of our hearts this morning that our aim is to do your will and that we'll be inspired generally just with more giddy-up, but specifically with specific charges from you this morning for what kind of life and what kind of behavior falls out of that aim. Lord, I also pray this morning for anyone who's here that does not have a real, life-giving, bone-shattering connection with you. I pray that they would hear your voice today and their heart and mind would be stirred. Hear us. As best we're able, you know, hear our concerns and hear our worries. As best we're able, we break open our chests and we ask you to massage your truth into our hearts. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, since we're people who aim at doing the will of God, that means that a certain amount of suffering will come our way. Look, the way of the world includes suffering, but the chances of our suffering is increased by our desire to do God's will. We've talked about that in previous weeks, but with that in mind, let's think first about establishing the right mindset. So I'm going to read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read the first four verses to start with, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. That's a different translation than we usually use here at Gateway, but there are several translation decisions that they made in the English Standard Version that I think are, are excellent. So we're going to read from the English Standard Version this morning. The first four verses, let's start with that, of Chapter 4 of 1 Peter. So I'd love for you to be looking on with me, if you would. If you're looking at the NIV, it'll be the same thing, it's just a little different here or there. 1 Peter, Chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Get ready. Giddy up. Arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking, with the same mindset, with the same attitude, the NIV translates that word, with the same way of thinking about things, the mindset, the framework. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Pause for dramatic effect. Wow. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is this past suffices, you're done with doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, look, they're surprised. The people you used to hang out with, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Interestingly, the word there is blaspheme. They insult you. They malign you. They blaspheme your character. They can't understand the difference in your life. We should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, the same mindset as Jesus. The implication being that since Jesus suffered, we will as well. And a part of that mindset we've already covered in our conversations through 1 Peter. And if you've been here for the last several weeks, you've heard the kind of mindset that Peter's setting us up for. This mindset includes things like, you know, we'll treat mistreatment with blessing. When we're mistreated, we will bless in return. This mindset also includes things like making proactive submission. You remember one Sunday, that was our main theme, and we said that should be the main theme in our relationships, at work, in response to government, at home, proactive submission. And today we find out that we need to add to that kind of mindset the realization that whoever suffers has ceased from sin. Wow, this is an astounding claim. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there are... basically three ways of taking Peter's outstanding claim here. The first way is some have suggested that Peter here is talking about Jesus and Jesus only in this phrase. In other words, when Jesus suffered, he ceased from sin. After all, the verse specifically mentions Jesus, and, and we know ourselves well enough to know that we don't cease from sin, but there's very little reason to take the phrase this way. That's not what Peter says. And besides, the implication of this would be that Jesus was sinning apart from and before his suffering, and this disagrees with the clear testimony of other biblical passages. So there's a second way of taking this. Some have taken this phrase to mean that when a Christian suffers well, when they manage it well, they will be freed from sin. All right, don't sleep on this idea because this verse actually seems to be saying exactly that. And at the very least, Peter is challenging us in that direction. In fact, this verse is used in exactly this way by the holiness movement. And the the holiness movement is a church movement, a, a spiritual movement that has its roots in 19th century American revivalism. Some of you have some of these backgrounds, but there are some Methodist churches and some Wesleyan churches, most Wesleyan churches actually, most Pentecostal churches, Christian Missionary Alliance, Churches of God, and Nazarene churches. Most of those churches had their genesis in the holiness movement. The holiness movement believed in and preached Christian perfectionism. And that is the idea, literally, that the follower of Christ can and should be done with sin. They should be perfect. And Peter comes close to saying this, doesn't he? And we need to be challenged by the call to literally quit sinning. In fact, the Apostle John, another one of Jesus' first followers, maybe Jesus' best friend, tells us that part of the reason that he wrote his sermon, which we know of as 1 John, is that, quote, we might not sin. I know this sounds like a crazy idea, but it has some basis in the apostles' teaching. And we need to stand under that. And yet, we know from Paul's testimony in Romans 7, go read it later, and from the literally constant advice we get on how to deal with our sin, That perfection is not something we will actually attain here in the flesh. And let's not forget that the same John who said, I write these things so that you won't sin, also said, if we claim we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. So this brings us to the third interpretation of this. It's just a slight tick away from the second interpretation. The third interpretation for Peter's meaning is that this is really part challenge, part inspiration part overwhelming epic call from God, that being when a person suffers, they break the power of sin over their life so that the choice to not sin becomes available to them. It really becomes possible not to sin so that when we suffer, it is as if we can now cease from sin. The result is that we live the rest of our lives with our aim being the will of God and not the satisfaction of our own passions. And that's what he rolls in to right after this in verse 2, right? We aim for the will of God, not for the satisfaction of our own passions. In other words, tying these together and flipping the order, Peter is saying we are people whose aim is to do the will of God, and that aim gets reinforced and secured through our suffering, We are people who aim to do the will of God, and that aim gets reinforced and secured through our suffering. We're done with indulging and gratifying our passions. We know where that leads. For those of us who have a drinking problem, and some of us do, we're done with indulging it. We battle it. We may lose some battles, but we will win the war. And if we struggle with codependency in our marriage or in all of our relationships, if we struggle with a food addiction or sex addiction, we go to something like celebrate recovery. We seek advice from someone like Paul Howdershell. We find accountability. We tell our small group, we battle it. We don't surrender and settle because we are people who aim at doing God's will. And part of the mindset that drives this is knowing that suffering actually aids in this effort. For the one who suffers has ceased from sin. Some of you have been around Gateway long enough to know my own struggle with anxiety, especially in my middle and later twenties. There were periods of time I don't think it was talked about as much. And. That age. Remember, this was the 1840s, and you know you couldn't readily get articles about that kind of thing. It just wasn't that much talk about it. I didn't have the language for it, but I would end up saying things like, "I just feel nervous all the time," and I, I don't know why. There was no real prevailing cause. There were times that this got so difficult for me that I would go to a movie theater and I would have to sit on the back row, and I would sit there like this the whole time, and just getting nervous. And I'm watching a movie. And I'd sit on the back row because, you know, I I may may need to get up and walk out because I just can't handle this. I had on a handful of occasions what I now know is probably a mild panic attack and thought literally I was dying. Here's what would happen to me during this period of my life. I would get into what I called the funk because I'd begin to feel nervous. And then what I'd do is I would feel nervous about feeling nervous. And then I'd feel nervous about feeling nervous about feeling nervous. And it was just, I would chase my tail down into a dark hole of just anxiety over nothing. Well, there were a series of things that happened through that period through which God really drug me out of that hole. But I want you to know that what I did was I pursued God. I don't say that by way of bragging. There was nothing during that period that felt like bragging. But I pressed in. I got mad at him. I yelled at him. I went to healing services. I had people pray over me, lay hands over me. The wilder they were in prayer, the more I wanted them to pray for me. I went to a counselor, two different counselors, to, to find out what was going on. There were a series of things that God did that kind of led me out of that dark alley, but I want to tell you what the primary thing was. I'm sure it was a series of things, a series of conversations with friends, a series of things that I read in the Bible. But it came to me like a sudden dawning. And I now realize this was God's voice. And I realized one day that by nature, I am an arrogant, silly little man who wears T-shirts that say, hashtag Nova. I'm a silly little man who loves attention, and I love to have fun. And that would have characterized my life had I not been driven by pain to pursue him. And then it happened. Then literally, like a switch going off in my head, I realized anxiety has been my friend. And all of a sudden, the power was gone. I still struggle with anxiety, but I never, never, I never experience the dark funk. I never chase my own tail in it because of a mindset change. Because God established in me the right mindset about my own struggle, light dawn on Marblehead. The one who suffers has ceased from sin. When we have this mindset, we increasingly become people who aim at and are able to do God's will. Look, this is simply a matter of us growing up spiritually. I was telling Diane this week as I was going through this, I, I realized this is just, this isn't really an order for you. This is a recognition this morning that God is doing this in you. God is establishing in you a different kind of mindset. You're looking at yourself differently. You're looking at the world differently because it's what the Holy Spirit does in you, and he's bigger than you are. Right. I, I remembered this time when I was a young kid, and I, I told Diane this before, but I was reminded of it, the other, I think it was yesterday or the day before. I was in the seventh grade. Distinct memory for me. I was in the seventh grade, and I was on the phone with a good friend of mine. Remember, this was before the age of cell phones. This was one of these crank it up, call Mildred things. And so <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got on the phone. We're talking, you know, I don't know what, seventh grade. But most of the time we were talking about sports. And we started talking about girls. And both of us together, we realized that people like three years older than us, they're going on dates. And we both went. What do you talk about all night with a girl? They don't know anything about sports. Sorry, Crystal, I didn't know you. They don't know anything. Do how do you even make conversation with a girl all night? And why would you want to? Well, within two years, I knew why you would want to. <laughs> and it took some time to develop the skill to be able to, but I did. Eventually developed the skill to be able to talk to a girl because my mindset changed. We need to establish the right mindset. Really, you know, probably what we need to do is just receive the right mindset because he's doing it in us. The second thing we need to do is live with the end in mind. At the end of the first paragraph and the beginning of the second paragraph, Peter encourages us to live with the end in mind. And I want to organize it this way. Think about it like this. Peter enlarges our context from the way we normally see our lives, because we just get really caught up in the mundane day-to-day, you know, what's right in front of us, the snapshot of my life right now. And Peter, through this next section, he enlarges the context, the way that we think about our lives. He enlarges it by, he expands, first of all, the timeline, and then he also expands the consequence graph. The the consequences are far more epic than you're thinking. So let's read it. Verses 5 through 7, live with the end in mind. He says about the ones who are blaspheming us, who are insulting us. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And he says to those who are dead because for these guys, he's going to say in a minute, the end of all things is near. Remember, Peter has seen a dead guy walking around. That dead guy later would tell them, listen, I'm going to come back again. And when I do, we're going to really establish God's kingdom the way it was designed from the beginning. Uh, This is a dead guy walking around. You're going to believe everything he says. And for Peter and those first guys, they thought, is it next week? Is it the month after that? It's any day, you guys. Be ready. They were surprised when people died. Oh, I'm so sorry you missed it. But, you know, you've already had the gospel preached to you. That's awesome. Remember, they're going to be with us in just a few minutes when Jesus comes again. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, you see how Peter expands the consequences graph? The consequences of our actions is far graver than just, you know, what we see here on the day to day. There's going to be an accounting There's going to be an assessment. You may struggle to believe this, but you'll miss part of what can aid you in in living out God's will if you lose sight of this. And do you see how he changes the timeline? There's going to be an endpoint to time as we know it. After that, there's going to be a different kind of history. He's radically changed the context within which we see our lives. So what are the implications of that? What are we to do in this larger context? Now how do we live? He goes on from there. Let's start with verse 7. Oh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers so that you can pray. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He's got a list going here, doesn't he? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So what are we to do? We are to live with the end in mind. We are to live with this context in mind. Notice what he doesn't say here. And I think this is important. He doesn't say we will fret and worry about what's coming. He doesn't instruct us to turn on the culture and to withdraw in fear and hate everything around us, all of this stuff out in that terrible culture. He doesn't tell us to obsess about the when and the where of the end. Oh, I know it's coming. Let me read eight books and think about the day and the hour when Jesus will come again. He doesn't give us any of that kind of advice. What he says is pretty standard stuff. He says live a godly life, basically. Now that you know the context, live a godly life. And he offers a list of what this godly life looks like. Verses 7 through 11. Now look, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. It's meant to be inspirational and representative. But I do think it's interesting what he actually lists here. Since our aim is to do the will of God, we should pray. And this is convicting to me because this is not the first thing that leaps to my mind. But it is the first thing that leaps to Peter's mind. Pray. Pray. And then he draws a big underline and a highlight and circles our word here at Gateway, what we believe our mission is, community. He says, love one another. Above all, love one another. Don't miss the significance of this. The business of doing and being community always leaps to the front of Peter's mind because he knows what's on Jesus' mind. Remember, Jesus had told Peter repeatedly and in various forms, look, they're going to know you're my follower if you love one another. So here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to love one another, and I want you to love one another. Let me say it again. I want you to love one another. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to serve one another. And above all, I want you to love one another. And Peter got the message, and we should too. We are people who aim to do God's will, and that means we will make loving one another a first-order priority. Then he follows. He adds a related theme to the list. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, because he knows that hospitality can be a hassle. It takes time and energy, but do it anyway, Peter is saying. The word hospitality here, by the way, usually referred especially to strangers. It may be that what Peter has in mind is he's reminding these Christians that when Visiting Christians come to their area for business or for trade. They should offer hospitality. This was common practice in the ancient Near East, and it was really difficult to get a good reservation at the local Best Eastern or the Comfort Inn. So Christians would take in other Christians. Here are some things, by the way, as an aside. Here are some things that I think of when I think of hospitality in our context. We should be inviting one another into our homes for meals and times together. We should be setting aside a Sunday or two a month where we can just go have lunch with someone that we don't know that well after church. Hey, let's go hang out. We should be thinking about, especially those of us who live in gigantic homes, i.e., everybody here. We should be thinking about having people live with us. I think of Kyle and Rhonda Jessup who took in that 'er ne'er-do-well George Gahungu. And it changed their lives. George became a huge influence on them because of their hospitality. I think of Alex and Jill York who have turned their home into a hotel. And delinquents like their niece and Aaron Croats have moved in with them. I also think we should let one another use our stuff because it's not our stuff. I don't know how many of you live in this area, but a lot of you do. If you know Bill and Lisa Russell's car, there was a period of time for months where I didn't know who was going to be in that car next. They kept loaning that car to some, and I would pass Bill's car, and it's some random person driving the Russell's car. Once again, listen, once again, Peter has focused his attention on our relational connections because it's all about relationships. As I said, this list isn't meant to be exclusive. These aren't the only ways that godliness should express itself, but these are the things that spring first to Peter's mind. The end of all things is near, Peter says. The context of your life is entirely different from the mundane, day to day stuff that often consumes you. So you need to be clear headed and and self controlled so you can pray. And then, above all, love one another. And by the way, offer hospitality to one another. And let me add one more thing to this list. Use what God has given you to serve others. God never gives us anything, nor does he do anything in us that he does not intend for us to pass on to others. If we truly speak the words of God the way God has given them to us, to others, and if we faithfully serve one another with the strength that God provides then God will be praised because of the movement of Jesus Christ through his people. Again, this is a plug for a a deeper dive in the community. We are people who aim at doing God's will. That means we will live with the end in mind. Look, those of you who are mothers, you know how to do this. Think of the time when you gave birth. Why in the world would anyone put themselves through that? And even more of a mystery, having done it, why would you do it again? And if you're Beth Fisher, why would you do it repeatedly? (laughs) Because you know the result. You know the end toward which this is pointing. As followers of Christ, we live with the end in mind. We live with the end in mind. In our relationships with the culture, even when they malign us, we can respond with grace and respect. We can meet mistreatment with blessing, in part because we know how the story ends. We live with the end in mind. And finally, we will entrust our circumstances to God. So let's do this quickly. 1 Peter 4, and I'm going to begin with verse 12. Beloved, Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to test you remember that, as though something strange were happening to you. This is not strange. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I wish we had time to talk about all that. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of us, let none of you, suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a, as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Talking about judgment all of a sudden. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what it means, look, there's no question that the implication of what Peter says here is that God is involved in our suffering. If we suffer, he says in verse 16, we shouldn't be ashamed. And then immediately, by way of explanation, he begins to talk about judgment. Through our suffering, hang on, and if you're hearing this this morning, I want you to come again next week because I'm going to say the opposite, and I'm going to tell you how the two go together. But through our suffering, God is judging. God is behind it. Remember, judgment doesn't necessarily mean condemnation. It can and almost always does include the idea of assessment. And sometimes it includes refinement. And that's certainly the case here. As part of his overall judgment, we are being refined by God through the suffering that he allows and the suffering that he introduces. So what are we to do with this? How are we to live in light of this? Verse 17 again through the end. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what it means to do good has been explained several times throughout this letter. It means to submit to government, to obey the laws. It means to submit at work, to be an excellent employee. It means to submit at home, to live for one another. It means to pray. It means to love. Above all, it means to love. It means to offer hospitality. Go out of your way. Make plans to be hospitable. I know it takes energy, but do it anyway. It means to meet mistreatment with blessing. It means to know that we will suffer, to receive his strengthening when we face it, and to do it well and victoriously because we can. Overall, it means always aim at doing the will of God. And while we're doing all of that, while we're being good, our inner attitude should be trust. The idea behind the word trust in the original language is to hand over something of value to the care of another. In our context, we are handing over our most precious and valuable possession, our very selves, to God. Peter may have had Psalm 31.5 in mind. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus quoted this psalm during his persecution. And just like Jesus We are to entrust our very lives, regardless of our circumstances, into the hands of a faithful creator who knows us and loves us. We are to entrust our circumstances to him. Let's wrap up. We're the kind of people who aim at doing God's will. And there are a couple of reasons today why you might be thinking, that is not me. If I'm honest with myself, I don't aim at doing God's will. I'm going to offer you a couple of possibilities for that, for why you may feel that way. Number one, possibility is you're wrong. <laughs> I respectfully disagree with you about your analysis of yourself. Sometimes we get really short-sighted and a difficulty happens to us and we struggle against it and we feel like we're unfaithful. We're in the wrong context. We're taking too short a view. We need to back up from our own lives and look at our lives in the whole context of it and realize that my life has been over the past six years or three years or 44 years for some of you, my life has been shooting really in the same direction because God's hand has been behind me moving me. And we take a really short view of things. You know, often you and I make decisions in the midst of difficulty when we're struggling with our insecurity. Or when we're struggling with our fear, when we're struggling with our circumstances, when we're struggling with our sexuality, or when we're struggling with the way we think about ourselves, we make short-sighted decisions and sometimes wrong decisions, and we move in wrong directions. But remember this, from most perspectives, life is really short. You know those of you who are Krista's age and younger, let's say, those of you who tend to be in your 20s or even your early 30s, you're already experiencing this, right? You're already realizing, Wow! It is June the 5th. How did that happen? This half year went a whole lot faster than it did when I was 10. Welcome to the rest of your life. (laughs) It gets faster and faster and faster. And from most perspectives, life is really, really short. But there are a few angles from which you look at life and it's really long. And one of those angles is when you are a Christ follower and you are not in a good place and are making bad choices. Life is really long because here's what happens. You make that choice and you know you're unfaithful maybe and you don't care or you don't even know you're unfaithful but you're doing it anyway and you've got to live with that choice tomorrow and next week and three months from now and a year and a half from now and four and a half years from now And seven years from now, you begin to realize that decision was not really anywhere near as satisfying as I thought it would be. And 13 years from now, you've still got to live with that decision. And all that time, the Holy Spirit, who's bigger than you are, is pressing and molding and changing your mindset and conforming you to his image because you know who you are? You're the kind of person who lives to do God's will. And that will be done in your life. And the consequences of your unfaithfulness, he's going to take care of that. And he's going to refine those edges and mold you and move you. There's another alternative. If you don't feel like you're the person who takes difficulty and handles it well, it may be that you have never really experienced the kind of bone-shattering change that launches your life in that direction you could even be religious there was a professor of religion who came to Jesus one time and asked Jesus a kind of epic question and Jesus' response to him was look Dr. Nicodemus I don't care how much you know about religion. I know you know a lot. There's got to be like a new principle in you. Something brand new has to be ignited in you. It's like you have to be born again, Dr. Nicodemus says. What are you talking about? I'm talking about something spiritual. I'm talking about something that happens in you that changes who you are, and now you become the kind of person who wants to do God's will. And some of you have not had that change. But it's simple. It is saying, all right, I surrender. And I entrust my circumstances to you fully. And then what happens is God says, finally, okay, let me start working on that mindset. Let me start making adjustments. And six months later, we go, wait, forget that. I thought it was going to be different than this. And you know what God says? Nope, we had a deal. So I'm just going to keep molding you through these circumstances all the way, in fact, to the very end. Because my goal for you, God says to us, my goal for you is not to make you happy. That comes as a byproduct. My goal is to make you holy and to shape you and to fit you for who I designed you to be, and for eternity. Because remember, we live in a very large context. Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would apply this truth to our hearts and our lives at the place where you need to make application. So I'm going to ask, keep your eyes closed for a second just for reflection and meditation. I'm going to ask you to engage with this this morning, if you would. We talked about establishing the right mindset. We talked about living with the end in mind, and we talked about entrusting our circumstances fully to God. We're going to sing a verse and a chorus to end today. But before we do, I want you to think about which one of those you need the most oomph from the Holy Spirit. You need some new giddy-up in your step, either with establishing the right mindset or with living with the end in mind, or with entrusting your circumstances to God. So, you feel like this morning you struggle the most with establishing the right mindset. Would you just stand? We're all going to be standing in a minute, by the way. If you feel like you struggle the most with living with the end in mind, would you stand? If your struggle this morning is most with entrusting your circumstances to God, would you stand? i you pray with me? Father, we just thank you that we have a victory that is in you, Lord. Help us to live and to walk in that truth and share that with those who are around us. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.